can open our Bibles up this morning to the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible, and verse, I'm sorry, chapter 25, verse 11 of chapter 25. This is where we left off last week, seeing the passing of Abraham and his two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, finally decided to set aside their differences and come together in mourning of their father's death. And what a sight that must have been. You know, Ishmael, the wild man from the beginning, coming together with Isaac, the promised son, to mourn their father. And unfortunately, a lot of times that is what it takes for a family to come together. It's the death of a loved one. And that's so unfortunate, but many times we see that's the case. But even before Abraham's passing, we saw his servant, who we believe to be Eliezer, go back to his master's homeland to gather a bride for Isaac, the father's son. He brings back Rebekah, and she comforts Isaac after his mother's passing. Now, picking back up after Abraham's death in verse 11, it says that, And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Be'er Lahai Roy. And that was the same well that Hagar named back several verses ago, or several chapters ago. Um, Be'er Lahai Roy, the well of the God who sees. This is where Isaac is dwelling. Now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. Our attention is now being pulled to Ishmael and his family. And there's not a whole lot said about Ishmael and his family. It only takes a few verses, but this is what the Holy Spirit lays before us. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajoth, then Kedar, Adbeel, Mibsim, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadar, Tema, Jeter, Nafish, and Kedemah. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names by their towns and their settlements, twelve princes according to their nations. Now, remember back in a couple other places, God promised that he would bless Ishmael along with Isaac. Ishmael wouldn't inherit all the promises, but he would still receive blessing. He said he would make Ishmael a great nation along with Isaac. From Isaac would come Jacob and Esau, and from Jacob would come the 12 sons that would become the tribes of Israel. Notice that 12 sons come from Ishmael too. There's 12 on each side. And it says here that they were princes. Verse 17, these were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Now, Ishmael lived 137 years, but it doesn't say that he was full or satisfied like it did say of Abraham. It just says that he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. 
There is some scholastic debate about whether Ishmael had faith in the God of his father, Abraham. And when he was in the desert dying of thirst as a boy, it seems he prayed to God for deliverance. That's, that's how it comes across. But it's impossible to know for sure if he did have saving faith because we're not given much else on him. I really can't say either way. We do know, however, that many of the Islamic nations today have descended from the children of Ishmael. But it's very difficult to follow these things through the generations. That is a study that you can undertake. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning. It turns out it's fairly tedious. Ishmael dies at 137. Isaac will outlive his brother by 58 years. Ishmael was born first, and he dies first. Now, verse 18, speaking of Ishmael's people now, to whom he was gathered, they dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. It's translated, he died in the presence of all his brethren in the New King James. But the usual word for died, mut, is not used here. And it's a bit strange what we have in the Hebrew text. Your Bible may have a note in the margin that this word translated died may mean fell. He fell in the presence of all his brethren. Usually that word mut would be used for died, but here the word used is nafal. What this means, we aren't 100% sure. Could he have fallen in battle among his brethren, you know, fighting for a cause? Possibly. Maybe he had a heart attack and he fell among his brethren. We don't know. It's just a curiosity. It's an unusual word used for this. Not much time is devoted to Ishmael's line, his generations, because that's not the focus of this narrative. The focus is on the messianic line that would come through Isaac and Rebekah. Now, verse 19, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife. Take note of that. He was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife. The daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. So at this point, Rebecca's background should be a little bit of a review for us since we went through that last week. She was related to Abraham. Okay, there is a relation there. And now Isaac is married to her. And verse 21, now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea. And Rebecca, his wife, conceived. Now, Rebecca, and by extension, Isaac, ran into some trouble. Now, I know that you can't relate to this because you've never faced family troubles before, right? Haha, uh-huh, yeah, sure. But I want you to try to put yourself in their shoes. Rebecca is having trouble conceiving a child. What does Isaac do? He pleads with the Lord. 
he prays for his wife. And as a husband, this is very informative to us. I think we would do well to follow Isaac's lead on this one. Do we pray for our wives enough? I pray for my wife. I'd like to more. Do we pray for our wives enough? If you ask her, probably not, right? We could always use a little more prayer. Does she know you're praying for her? If you are, does she know that? Do you tell her? Do you pray together? Our wives need our support in a lot of ways, and no doubt we need theirs. Prayer is absolutely critical in a marriage. It is. Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife. His pleading and the Lord granting his plea are both contained in the same sentence. That makes it seem like the answer to Isaac's prayer came almost immediately. That could not be further from the truth. That was far from the reality of the situation. And looking down to verse 26, we see that Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah delivered their sons. In verse 20, we saw that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. For 20 years, they struggled. Now, we don't know how those 20 years went. We don't know what they looked like. If they started trying to conceive right after they got married, Did Isaac pray for his wife fervently for 20 years? Or did his prayers continue to get more and more desperate as time went on and they realized that Rebecca was getting close to the age where she probably couldn't conceive a child anymore? Did they increase in fervor? It doesn't tell us. It simply tells us that he pleaded with the Lord for his wife. Isaac's prayer was not answered overnight. How many times did he think despairingly, well, might as well just stop asking, you know, give up on this dream we have. It's never going to happen. Yet he held on to his hope for years, pleading, pleading with the Lord. How soon do we give up on things that we start to pray for? Isaac held on to his hope. But the children struggled together within her. So the Lord grants her plea and her husband's plea. But these children are struggling. They're literally fighting inside her womb. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? Does your wife ever ask you a question like this? You know, if all is well, why am I like this? That's danger. Danger. You got to be careful there. You got to answer it correctly. But Rebecca does something better than inquiring of her husband. It says she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. No wonder she couldn't sleep at night. No wonder these babies kept her up. Lebanon and Israel were fighting inside of her body. 
This prophecy would have clearly communicated to her that her younger son was to receive the inheritance and the promises that God made to Abraham. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. That seems backwards to us. Man usually feels that the firstborn son should be the one to receive his father's inheritance. That's the typical pattern that we see throughout history. But God doesn't necessarily work this way. And in the messianic line, it's notable that neither Seth, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, or David were firstborn sons. None of those figures were. And we aren't even sure about the rest. Really, really interesting that God does not use the firstborn sons. That's what man uses. Romans 9, 10 through 13, clearly communicates to us that God had chosen Jacob in accordance with his purpose. Even before they were born, God chose Jacob as the son who would bear his covenant promise. And we look at that and think, man, that's not fair. Esau never even had a chance. But remember that God knows the qualifications of these two men before they're even born. He knows that Jacob is going to be more spiritually minded than his brother. And he knows that Esau is going to be more fleshly minded, more of a carnal guy. He knows their qualifications and he chooses the one that he knows is going to be qualified for the job of passing that spiritual inheritance on to his progeny. As for his reasoning for choosing Jacob, we could speculate that it has to do with his unique spiritual and moral qualifications. Though most men, even Isaac, would have made a different choice, God chose to bless Jacob above Esau. And he did so with perfect knowledge. And we're going to circle back around here, but I want to go 30,000 foot view for a moment and get this picture that we're seeing. Isaac, the promised son, entreats the father on behalf of his bride. She wishes to be fruitful for him. She wishes to bear fruit on his behalf. Do you see the picture? The son entreats the father on behalf of his bride, and she wants to bear fruit for him. And it goes on. Within the bride, there's a war between two factions, the old man and the new man, the flesh against the spirit the more spiritually-minded son, the more carnally-minded son. There's a wrestling that happens inside each one of us who make up the body and bride of Christ. Being born again, we have the Spirit to guide us. We are born a new creation in Christ. But the flesh is constantly trying to rise up again to power. There is this struggle. 
It's two nations, two sides. The picture that we have with Rebecca and her sons is amazing. But the older shall serve the younger, the old man. The Bible calls it the old man, the flesh. It will ultimately be in subjection to the new man, the spirit. Galatians 5 verse 17 says, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Those are our two factions. And these, it says, are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. And Paul continues to talk about the works of the flesh contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. The bride wants to bear fruit. Two natures are at war with each other. Spurgeon's encouragement was, dead men don't wrestle. Dead men don't wrestle. If you struggle, struggle is a sign of life. There's nothing wrong with the struggle. It's a sign of a new birth, because otherwise you'd be perfectly content to live in that life of sin, feeding the carnally-minded man. You know, in our 30,000-foot view, we see how this relates to the church. But as we zoom back into these men personally, they also end up fulfilling this prophecy. Jacob swindles Esau's birthright and blessing, and their descendants would also live out this prophecy. 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 14 speaks of the Edomites who are descendants of Esau. We'll see how the name Edom gets transmitted to Esau later. The Edomites become David's servants, David being a descendant of Jacob. So this prophecy goes far beyond the surface level, just dealing with these two boys and their lives, but it goes even to their progeny. Verse 24, So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, Indeed, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Esau literally means hairy, so they called him Harry. There's not a lot of creativity in this name here, but this was a fitting name for him. You know, later on, when Jacob presents himself to his father, as Esau, he has to put goatskins on his arm to come across as hairy as Esau was. This is not a normal level of hair. It, it seems very fitting that they would call him hairy Esau. Afterward, when his brother came out, his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Can you imagine being 60 years old and having twins, twin boys? Sounds insane. Esau's brother was called Jacob, Jacob, literally meaning heel catcher, and by extension, supplanter. He was a bit devious. But there's another connotation of this name that is really often missed. In fact, 
I just came across it studying for this message. And I suspect it was more cultural because the connection is made by Hosea between his name, Yaakov, and strength. In Hosea chapter 12, verse 3, it reads, He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. Jacob was tenacious. It seems that Hosea draws a connection between his name, the heel catcher, and his strength as he struggled with God. He was strong. He was tenacious. But we look at these two brothers and we think the hunter, the big hairy man, is the strong one. Right? That's, that's what I think, at least. At least on the surface. Esau probably was stronger physically than Jacob. But God doesn't just look at the physical frame. Jacob's determination and his resolve proved to be more remarkable in God's eyes than his physical strength. Let that be a lesson to us. And, you know, I'm certainly not against developing physical strength. In fact, I think it's really important to do exactly that. The process of building physical strength is such a net positive to our lives overall And I personally devote a lot of my time to helping others cultivate their physical strength. You know, I coach people. However, if we are focusing on that side of it to the exclusion of our spiritual, emotional, and relational strength, we end up being a sack of meat walking around that can't deal effectively with other people, that can't function as well as a human should be able to, right? Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4.8, I just, I throw this in here because I like it. Exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. He doesn't say that exercise is useless. He says it does profit a little, but there's something more important, godliness. So the boys grew, as they do, and they probably ate a lot in the process. And Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Uh Uh-oh, this is not good. Favoritism starts to creep into this family. Esau was a man's man. He was the mountain man kind of figure. Big beard, hairy, outdoorsman, probably shopped at Cabela's. All those good things. He was a skilled hunter and often brought his dad venison to eat. And Isaac loved that. The only other time someone is described as a skilled hunter in the Bible is Nimrod. We know that was not a good thing. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. So the description is a little foreboding here, but it's not necessarily negative. There's there's not necessarily a negative bent to this description of Esau. Okay, it's just telling you about him. He was a hunter. He was an outdoorsman. He was hairy. 
it does say that Jacob was a mild man. And this is the only time in the Bible that that word is translated that way. It's usually rendered as blameless or upright. In fact, it's the same word translated mild here that was used to describe Job as blameless. Personally, I think that the translators did us a disservice here because it's really trying to tell us that Jacob was upright. He was an upstanding individual. And Jacob, it says that Jacob dwelt in tents. Just like his grandfather Abraham, he didn't settle down into a permanent dwelling at this point. Jacob was a smooth-skinned man who liked to stay in the tent and cook. I kind of think of a Mr. Rogers type figure. You know, changing his sweater, changing his shoes when he comes in. (laughs) Very mild-mannered. Can you say neighborhood? (laughs) Jacob was changing his sweater to match the seasons and cleaning up around the house while Esau was out hunting. You see the distinct contrast here. And Isaac loved Esau. Now, as I'm sure any dad would, he loved the guy who was brawny, hairy, and was a hunter. That's cool. It says that he liked him so much because he brought him meat. Probably not a a great reason to favor one of your kids, but who doesn't love meat? And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And this kind of favoritism in a family is so dangerous. It's so dangerous. It's easy for a kid to tell if you like their sibling more than them. And it can do real damage to their sense of self if they feel like they're always trying to measure up to the favorite sibling. We would do well to guard ourselves from any level of favoritism trying to creep into your family. You know, Isaac himself grew up as the special kid, the favorite. He did. He was the promised son to Abraham and Sarah. Abraham loved Ishmael, but Sarah came to despise Ishmael and what he represented to her. And so Isaac, the son of promise, ended up being the favorite child. He grew up in that environment, and I have no doubt that that had an effect on him and how he dealt with his sons. Now he begins to fall into that same trap of showing favoritism. Unfortunately, the issue of the favorite kid seems to have divided Isaac and Rebekah to some extent. Since they love different kids, that started to drive a wedge in their relationship. Isaac loved Esau because he brought him meat, but Rebekah loved Jacob, and we assume that's because he had a more domestic side to him. He liked to cook, and he liked to hang out in the tent with his mom. Now, as we approach the subject of Esau's birthright, 
there's a little bit of background work that we need to do to fully connect the dots here. First, the birthright and the blessing, which we'll see later, are distinct from one another. They are different things. It's a bit difficult to keep them straight since they both start with B, but we're going to do our best. The birthright, think birth, is connected with the firstborn son's inheritance. The son with the birthright received a double portion of his father's inheritance. But there was also a spiritual aspect to this birthright. The son who possessed the birthright took the father's pos- his position as head of the household. That also comes with a lot of responsibility as he also became the spiritual leader of that family. A blessing in these days served as a sort of last will and testament of the father. A blessing could be given regardless of the birthright, but a greater blessing was typically given to the son who did hold the birthright. Okay, so not necessarily connected, but somewhat. Receiving a blessing from one's father was a high honor, and the blessings of the Old Testament usually included three elements. The first element of the blessing words of encouragement to the son. The second element, details regarding his inheritance. Sort of a last will and testament. The third element of the blessing, it usually included some prophetic words of the son's future as given to that dad by God. That is the birthright and the blessing. We are currently dealing with the birthright. And I have little doubt that Rebecca told her husband Isaac about that prophecy that God had given her of the two nations in her womb. I'm sure she did. But with time, Isaac began to favor Esau on account of his venison, possibly disregarding or just maybe not taking into consideration what God told his wife many years before. For whatever reason, Isaac's affections tended towards Esau. Both Rebekah and Jacob could probably sense Isaac's favor towards Esau. And they likely became increasingly concerned that he was going to deliver the blessing to Esau despite God's prophecy. You see the concern? It, this is building tension in the family. In their minds, in the minds of Rebecca and Jacob, this would have been a tragedy if the birthright was delivered to Esau because they saw Esau's complete disregard for anything spiritual and they did not want to let that happen. But they must have overlooked the fact That God could have worked to rectify any wrong done by Isaac and see through his purpose, no matter what Isaac chose to do. There was no need for them to sin, to meddle in the middle of everything, to get God's purposes accomplished. With these family tensions mounting, 
an opportunity presented itself to Jacob, the supplanter, and he took full advantage of it. And in his mind, it very well could have been to help God accomplish his will. Let's read verses 29 through 34. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. That's where he gets that name, and the reason the Edomites are called such. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I am about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Maybe a little dramatic there. Then Jacob said, Swear to me of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. As far as I'm aware, the Bible never directly condemns nor praises Jacob for these actions. That's interesting. However, Esau is condemned in Scripture for these actions. Hebrews 12, verses 16 and 17, calls Esau a, quote, fornicator and profane person who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. That's a pretty big accusation. Esau is a type of the flesh, of the carnal man, as we talked about. He didn't care for spiritual things, only what would satisfy his flesh in the moment. And when we say carnal, we're not just talking about sexually. That definitely is a part of it, can be a part of it, but that's not all of it. Here, it's food. The food was the carnal aspect that Esau chased after, disregarding the spiritual blessings of the birthright. He went after the beans. He didn't care for spiritual things. He was willing to sell his spiritual inheritance to his brother to satisfy his body's need for food. But not just that. It would have taken him a matter of minutes to prepare his own food. There obviously was food there to be prepared. He just had to have it at that moment. Now, this isn't to say that Jacob's actions are excusable. It seems Jacob's sin here was not one of greed, not one of blackmail, but it was a lack of faith. He should have been willing to let God work this problem out in his own time. The way it comes across, Jacob might have made his proposition to his brother out of jest or just flippantly, not really expecting him to go along with it because it is outrageous. Hey, why don't you just sell me your birthright? I'll give you a bowl of, bowl of lentils. And then when Esau responded the way he did, interested, Jacob was probably taken aback a little bit. Oh, are you serious? You'd be willing to do that? All right. 
swear to me this day. Remembering God's promise to his mother, Jacob might have thought that this would be the perfect opportunity to make good on God's promise, to turn the tables in his favor, to be the one that took control. And it's funny and sad, all at the same time, that Esau was called Edom, which literally means red, in reference to the red beans that he sold his birthright for. So anytime someone called him Edom, he was reminded of this moment. He was reminded of this incident that left this bitter taste in his mouth for his brother and his mother, probably his father as well. Bitterness. Verse 34 says that, Thus Esau despised his birthright. That is, he thought of this incident with disdain for it. It was really a bitter point in his relationship with his brother. And this incident, along with the following deception that we'll get to next week, would be the root of bitterness that would fester long into the future of their relationship. Even among their posterities, their descendants, this bitterness. Jacob's actions ended up alienating him and his mother from Isaac and Esau, driving a wedge into the family. And it effectively created two factions within their family. How differently this situation could have played out instead of taking this moment and turning it into something bitter, if only they had patience, if only they trusted God to deliver his promises in the right way and not taken an ill-thought-out action against his brother, Jacob could have had his spiritual inheritance and a great relationship with his brother and parents. But this knee-jerk reaction caused him to drive a wedge into those many relationships. What if Jacob had committed this matter of the spiritual inheritance to God in prayer, in secret, and just waited for God to work it out as he had already promised to do? How much better of a route would that have been? Chapter 26. There was a famine in the land, besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Now, right off the bat, we know that this is not the same famine that Genesis 12 mentioned in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. And we've heard Abimelech come up before. This is very, very likely not the same Abimelech. Because you remember that Abimelech is just a title for this Philistine king. It's not his proper name. It's not a proper noun. So we have a different guy in view here. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, 
and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I have given these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father, and I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. God makes sure that Isaac knows that he's not to go down to Egypt. Why didn't he why did God allow Abraham to make the mistake of going down to Egypt, sojourning in Egypt for a while during the famine and then coming back up? That was a mistake on Abraham's part. Why did God allow that in Abraham's case? but speak to Isaac so emphatically against going to Egypt. He didn't allow Isaac to make that mistake. And I don't know why. But I do know that his timing is right. God reassures Isaac that he'll be taken care of. Of course, what is our tendency to do when we know we're not supposed to do something? get as close to it as we can without actually doing it. So Isaac dwells in Gerar, which was right on the Egyptian border. He's so close to Egypt, but he's not technically in Egypt. Why is that the way we like to live? Right on the border. Here's the thing. When you live on the border, your kids see that. And this goes back to that same conversation that we had about Lot. Are you able to handle it? Maybe. Are you able to have a couple of beers, get a light buzz, not go over the edge, because you know getting drunk is wrong? I'm just going to have a couple. You may be able to handle that. That's all well and good. But how is it affecting your kids? Because they do see that, and they take note of it. Your kids see a parent that doesn't mind living on the border. And they're taking a mental note of how you handle that. Then, when they're faced with a situation in which they have to choose, they're going to soften their position against the world. Because, well, that's what dad did. Isaac's going to fall into a very similar trap. That's what dad did. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar, and the men of the place asked him about his wife. Uh Uh-oh. Abimelech and Abraham. Abimelech asked Abraham about Sarah. What did Abraham say? She's my sister. Isaac takes, takes good notes. And he said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say, she is my wife, because he thought, lest the men of the place kill me for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. What a tragedy. Well, dad did it. Abraham told a half-truth, which was effectively a full-blown lie. Now Isaac really tells a full-blown lie. 
Rebecca is not his sister in any way, shape, or form. Now, Rebecca at this point is no spring chicken. It seems the boys had already moved away. She's still beautiful to behold. No doubt there's something beyond the physical beauty in view here. Now it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, they had been here a long time, dwelling in Gerar, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac, showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Now I love the King James here. It says, and behold, Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife. They were playing baseball out back. Very cool. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Quite obviously, she is your wife. You don't play baseball with anybody else. So how could you say, she is my sister? How could you do this? Isaac said to him, Because I said, lest I die on account of her. The same excuse that Abraham gave, Isaac gives. And Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Even these Philistines knew adultery was wrong. They knew that. And they marveled that Isaac would put such an ensnarement in front of them. If they fell into adultery, they knew that the guilt of that would be brought on all of their people. They viewed this sin as dangerous, as grave. The Philistines. They also mentioned that one representative of their country falling into this trap could have brought guilt upon them all. You know, and we look at America and what a mess it is. What a mess. How refreshing would it be to hear one of our leaders talking like this? Realizing that even what we put on the billboards, on the ads, the commercials, on TV, that that is dishonoring to God. How refreshing would it be? Unfortunately, Isaac does not leave a good testimony with Abimelech. I mean, what kind of testimony would this leave? You come in, lie about your wife being your sister. Well, then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. Now I want you to take note of this because it tells us something important. Just because God is blessing you doesn't mean he approves of everything you're doing. 
Just because God is blessing you doesn't mean he approves of everything you're doing. Isaac had just messed up big time. He had perpetuated this lie for, quote, a long time. After they had been there a long time, Abimelech found out. Yet, God blesses him. God's blessings are not an accurate representation of how he feels about your behavior. A more sure way to know what God thinks is by his revealed word. What does scripture say about it? How does the Bible tell us we should behave, conduct ourselves? That's how we know what God thinks about it, not because of our bank account, not because of the house we live in. Isaac was blessed despite his actions, not because of them. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Now evidently, these people were threatened by the presence of Isaac and his household. Anytime you're blessed, anytime you start seeing success, there will be Philistines around you, and they will envy you. They'll make your path difficult. They'll fill in your wells. Whenever your ministry, whether personal or professional, is prospering, you'll have detractors. You'll have people trying to go in behind you filling in your wells. The Philistines filled in the wells that Abraham's servants had dug. They drove out Isaac from among them, and I have little doubt that that had something to do with his dishonesty. It wasn't just that he was prospering, although that's the reason that they give. Verse 17, Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. That's a cool picture too. Because you have Isaac, the son, going around redigging the wells that his father had dug, and bringing back life to that area. Wells were very important, still are, in that part of the world. You know, water is a very, very precious resource. It's life. You can't have life without water. And by filling in the wells, they were essentially stopping up the flow of life for Isaac, for his encampment. Wells were also the centerpiece of a lot of communities. There were communities built around these wells because they had readily accessible water. That picture is also seen here of community. Now, Also, verse 19, Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, that means quarrel, because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well, 
And they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna, which means enmity. You know how this goes. You've seen it before. Might have been a part of it. Two people want the same thing. What happens? They fight over it. Human nature 101. But Isaac seems to be the gracious one in this case, and it says that he moves away. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Verse 22 is where we're going to wrap up our study this morning. Isaac digging again the wells of his father, those wells that Abraham had pioneered, had his servants dig. And we're going to continue seeing the picture of these wells next week. And we're going to draw some more things out of this. And then we'll continue on into chapter 27 when Jacob usurps Esau's blessing. You know, he's really trying hard to get on his brother's bad side. And that will come to to fruition in the next few chapters. And we'll see how the bitterness that was sown here is reaped later. Please bow your heads with me as we close our study. Thank mm-hmm. you.